This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. Welcome to the human side of healthcare. Delighted you're with us today. And we really want to focus on stroke awareness, symptoms, the type of stroke, some of the treatment that you can receive. And we're delighted that we've got with us Dr. Matthew Fiesta, who's an interventional neuroradiologist at Texas Health Harris Methodist Hospital in Fort Worth. Dr. Fiesta, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me today. Thanks for being with us. Uh, You know, strokes don't discriminate. People of all ages could have a stroke. Is that correct? Definitely. That's very true. Stroke uh, affects everyone. No one is immune from a stroke. And it's important to realize that because definitely when you're younger, you may blow off a symptom that's transient. It could last a couple seconds or even a minute and goes away. And you think, I'm okay now. That was, what was that? Did I imagine that happening? Unlike, say, a heart attack where you've got extreme pain in your chest and you're not going to ignore that. But a small little lack of sensation in your arm or hand or maybe some dizziness that came out of nowhere or maybe you can't speak briefly or understand language. Those are, you know, warning signs of maybe a bigger stroke to come. So you should not ignore those symptoms and know that, hey, just because I'm younger, that um, I'm not immune from a stroke. I may have a stroke still. And it's important to know your family history, see your doctor regularly, know your risk factors. Um, so stroke is a very uh, debilitating disease. I mean, it affects, it's like 795,000 people had a stroke last year, according to the CDC, and 610,000 of those were like new or first-time strokes. And in Texas, uh, I was looking at the um, Texas Department of State Health Services recently, and I was talking about in 2017, stroke was the third leading cause of death in Texas with like 42 deaths per 100,000 people. So it's, I think other places I've read it was like fifth or sixth. So I mean, it's definitely in the top six at least as a cause of death. So it's important to know about stroke. Can you explain the different types of strokes? Definitely. It's a good question. The most common type of stroke is what we call an ischemic stroke, where a blood vessel is blocked in the head, most commonly from a clot that goes up to the brain vessel and blocks it. And as it's blocking that vessel, the the brain is not receiving the blood it needs with the oxygen, uh, you know, to survive, and the brain cells die. And uh, that's called an ischemic stroke, and, and that's very important to, of course, all kinds of stroke get to the hospital as soon as possible. This type of stroke, um, you may go to the hospital and be able to receive if you get there, you know, within usually four and a half hours, you may receive a thrombolytic, which can actually dissolve that clot. Um, other things, you may have to go to intervention where if it's a large vessel blocked, we can actually travel, you know, with long uh, tubes called catheters from the leg or arm all the way to the brain vessel and actually pull the clot out by using a device called a stem retriever or even a, like a suction catheter. Uh, less common but still very important uh, types of stroke is what they call a hemorrhagic stroke. And that is, again, the same problem where the brain is not receiving the oxygen it needs because the blood's not getting to it. But this time, instead of being blocked in the vessel, it's because the vessel itself is leaking the blood outside the brain tissue. And that can come from an aneurysm, say, rupture. Um, it's called a subrocterine hemorrhage. And that typically presents, the common saying is, it's the worst headache of your life. 
you may have headaches in the past. You may have even migraines, but this one's a little different. It's the worst headache of your life. You may get nauseous from this, start vomiting. Also an emergency, get to the hospital because it could mean that you had an aneurysm rupture, which needs to be treated and your blood pressure has to be controlled. Uh, other types of strokes besides, you know, aneurysm rupturing could be like high, say um, high blood pressure can actually cause the brain tissue itself bleeds. Uh, and that also needs to be you know treated. It may cause mass effect on that brain and you may need emergency surgery. So, uh, but those are all the main types of strokes we deal with. Dr. Fiesta, you mentioned in your answer, if you can get the reversing medication in a certain period of time, it can help reverse effects of stroke. So the sooner you get to the hospital, the better. 100%. There's a common saying we have that time is brain. And that just means that, yes, your brain cells you know, are dying every second. So the sooner you can get there to the hospital and hopefully receive, if you're a candidate for that, that medication that then it may dissolve that clot and then save those brain cells from dying. And thankfully at Harris Methodist Fort Worth, we just have a huge volume of over, we were the, the busiest hospital for stroke last year, over 1500 stroke admissions, meaning that we're good at it. We get a lot of patients are very fast at um, when the patient arrives, getting them evaluated for being a candidate for that medication you mentioned and giving it to them as soon as possible if they're a candidate. And then at the same time, in the appropriate imaging to see if maybe they have a bigger stroke, which what I mean by that is if you've got a larger vessel blocked in the head, the medication that you give through the IV that's supposed to break up that clot may not work on those those uh, larger clot burdens, the ones that block the larger vessels. And then we can see through advanced imaging whether or not the patient is a someone that's a candidate for the intervention I mentioned previously, where we actually go up to the, the brain vessel itself and pull the clot out mechanically. You know, as you look at different ages of individuals, and let's talk about younger adults, are there certain strokes they tend to have more frequently than others? For sure. Um, I think the most common, I would say, that we see is due to what we call a dissection, a carotid dissection. Some phrase it as cervical carotid dissection because the cervical part is the portion of the neck. Yeah, when you're younger, you may have more likely to have trauma, uh, and trauma can lead to, like, say, even I mean, everybody has car accidents, but different traumas can lead to injury to a neck vessel. You may also have uh, just different activities you're doing in at all, where you maybe stretch or strain or twist a certain way. I mean, it's, it's pretty unlikely to happen, but it does happen. Being at the busiest place, we see everything. You know, studies that have been released by the American Heart Association over, I think, the last 30 years show that. Younger people are having strokes. Can you comment on that? It's a great question. I think that a lot has to do with the traditional stroke risk factors, such as high blood pressure, you know, high cholesterol, uh, diabetes, obesity, smoking. Those are all factors that affect everybody. And I think the certain lifestyle changes, even in the younger generation, um, has caused you know these almost an advancement, almost like a prematurity of um, basically plaque like premature plaque in the vessels. They, they, you see someone's vessels on a scan, you're like, this person's only 30 years old or four years old, but they have vessels. It looks like someone that's 70 or 80. That's because they've left unchecked those traditional stroke risk factors to go on and they haven't been seeing, as I mentioned earlier, their primary care doctor to see if they have high cholesterol. Do they have diabetes? Do they have high blood pressure that's been you know unchecked for a long time? Again, goes back to maybe thinking that they're, you know, they're young and, immune from problems in general. Another thing I think I've read about is interesting is this 
you think about the younger generation, uh, it's just different in terms of the workplace way in the past and then today. I think a lot of times people have different jobs. They may change jobs more frequently. And for changing jobs, you may have different insurances that happen. So it's hard to stick with maybe the same primary doctor. And that's part of it. Uh, another part of it could be just that they, uh, you know, urgent care is more prevalent now as well. So you may think, okay, well, I've got a problem. I can just go to this urgent care place as opposed to seeing a, a regular doctor every so often for preventative care. So I think convenience factor may have changed some things too, to where they're not getting these things checked out. You know, strokes are one of those silent diseases that we want to do everything we can to prevent. What about heredity? Well, we'll tackle that next with Dr. Matthew Fiesta on the human side of healthcare. This is the human side of healthcare, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. And welcome back. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Matthew Fiesta. He's an interventional neuroradiologist with Texas Health Harris Methodist Hospital in Fort Worth. And an obvious question is, what about heredity? Does that play into being prone to strokes? For sure. So just in general, like people that have in their family say any disorder that has high cholesterol or, you know, diabetes, uh, high blood pressure, it's important to know that it's in your family so that you may think, okay, well, when I'm older in my forties or fifties, I worry about that then. But if it's something that you know is in your family, you may get that at a much earlier age and develop this kind of premature uh, plaque in the vessels. So it's, that's a very important thing there. The other thing just to think about is there are some even genetic abnormalities that can occur that make your blood thicker in general. Some things are like antiphospholipid syndrome, sickle cell disease, um, some other autoimmune um, diseases can also lead to just having uh, thicker blood and make you want to form clots more easily. So if you were an individual that's had a stroke, and I know it depends on you as a physician evaluating how serious it is, what are some of the treatments for a stroke? You know, thankfully, we, we have a lot of good practice at doing stroke care at Harris Methodist Fort Worth with our high volume. And uh, we have excellent ED physicians and stroke clinicians that are in the ED that evaluate these patients. And they give them a certain score. They say, you know, one thing it's important to know is those, those warning signs or how, how does a stroke look, I should say. And one thing that the American Heart Association promotes is uh, like the, the fast signs. You look for facial droop or arm weakness uh, or speech abnormalities. And definitely, as you mentioned earlier, uh, time time's important. Uh, you see those things, and we also use different scoring as well in the ED, looking for those same things. Is how severe is the arm weakness? If they have that, do you have a speech problem as well, or do they have maybe neglect? Where a really big stroke, many times you'll see is someone's eyes will actually look to the side where the blocked vessel is. So, for instance, let's say you're right-handed. It's more common to have your speech on the left side. That's where the center for speech is. So if you had a left-sided stroke, the eyes may be deviated to the left, and then your whole, but the whole left brain controls the right side of your body. So you would have problems with your right arm, you have right facial droop, you would have a problem speaking, maybe both speaking language and understanding language. But um, once we see that, we, we give them kind of a score how severe it is. And if it's uh, in a certain time window, for sure they get evaluated for any eligibility for the thrombolytic. And once they, they, you know, pass the eligibility, they'll give them that intravenous medication to help go through the whole system, hopefully go to that clot and break it up. At the same time, we also get, uh, before we do that thrombolytic, though, we'll get a CT scan. As we mentioned, those types of stroke, right, there's one was ischemic stroke where there's uh, no bleed. It's just that a vessel is blocked. But they see that the brain has a bleed on it, 
then they realize that the same kind of symptoms you're feeling aren't from a blocked vessel, but it's actually from the bleed you had. And in that case, you don't want to give anybody that thrombolytic to break up the clot because that'll cause worse bleeding. So the first thing I always do is you're into the ED with a stroke, go to the scanner, get a CT scan, make sure there's no bleed. At that point, if they're eligible for the thrombolytic, give that. At the same time, then, if they have a pretty severe stroke, we'll then also get what they call a CT angiogram, which looks at the vessels in the head, and many times also a CT perfusion, which is basically looking at how the flow is moving through the brain over time. And it shows, basically, if someone is a candidate, there's a brain to save for this patient. An individual should really know the symptoms of the stroke because it could be a loved one, a friend, or a family member who's got the drooping and the movement in the eyes that you talked about, and they may not realize they're having a stroke. So you should be keenly aware. Would you agree? 100%. I've had a patient once that uh, I saw in my clinic that we treated her for a stroke, and she thankfully recovered fully, came to my clinic, and she explained to me that I mean, she was having the stroke and kind of knew it, but she couldn't do anything about it. That She was on the floor for a while, and then finally um, she remembers her, her daughter coming over and seeing her on the floor, and uh, calling 911. So it's really, you think almost, if I'm having a stroke myself, I can maybe alert somebody or, or get help myself in some way. But it really is kind of a silent emergency where it really does depend on uh, those around you, the public, your loved ones, anybody to see that and act on it right away. People that are having symptoms of a heart attack many times take an aspirin. If you're having the definite symptoms of a stroke, should you take an aspirin? Uh, definitely not. It's because you're not sure what kind of stroke you have yet. So it could be, you know, the ischemic stroke where the blood vessel is blocked by clot. But then the other one you may have is the hemorrhagic stroke where you actually have a bleed on the brain and by adding aspirin, it can make the bleed worse. So it's important to not uh, take anything at all. But it's important to know as a family member when someone comes in to have all the medications of the patient available so we can know, hey, has this patient received so they know what medications we can give and what we're dealing with from a stroke standpoint. It's important to know as a family member when someone comes in to have all the medications of the patient available so we can know, hey, has this patient received? So they know what medications we can give and what we're dealing with from a stroke standpoint. Another question. Individual is not feeling well, has a few symptoms of a stroke and says, I'm going to lay down and rest or take a nap and see if I feel better. You could have a stroke in your sleep, correct? 100%. Yeah, it's, it's really a common presentation is a wake-up stroke. You go to work and it's early morning and you get the history. The patient lasts no well previous evening. And uh, now they were found to be with stroke symptoms in the morning by their loved one. And they brought them in. So they're not even witnessed. This happens sometime in the night. They may say, well, actually, I think about it. I heard him go to the bathroom maybe 2 in the morning, 3 in the morning. That's important to know that because... Then it's, it's still a wake-up stroke, but you know at least that they got there at, say, 6 a.m., 7 a.m., and you saw them or heard them go to the bathroom at 3 or 3.30 a.m., that was their last known well. So even though it was kind of a wake-up stroke, if you have evidence that it has only been about four to four and a half hours, it may be a candidate so for the, the thrombolytic to be administered. If the patient or the patient's family does not know the time frame of when the stroke began, so you don't know if you're within the four-and-a-half-hour window, is there any danger to give the medication without knowing the time frame? There definitely is. There's definitely a, uh, a risk where if you go above 
so many hours from last noon to be normal, there's a higher risk of potentially the brain that has been, you know, injured from the stroke, uh, having a hemorrhage from that uh, thrombolytic. So that's probably become no longer a candidate, but there are some, you know, evaluations that looked at for on MRI, there's a thing called a wake up uh, trial that looked at maybe, you know, MRIs may indicate there's no major injury yet. And there's no certain changes on the, on certain MRI sequences yet. So even though we don't know exactly when you're last known well by the imaging characteristics, you're probably, uh, you know, less than four and a half hours. Uh, that's something that still is not as common uh, that we do. But the, the main benefit, thankfully, is, as I mentioned, is that the uh, mechanical thrombectomy is a term we use for when you can go up uh, and actually retrieve the clot. And thankfully, when patients are not a candidate for the medication thrombolytic, then they are still a candidate for the mechanical means to pull the clot out. And that has saved so many extra patients because all of a sudden now, many who weren't even candidates because they didn't know the last known, the last known well time, they become a candidate. And that comes down to, again, I mean, not everybody is a candidate, but what you look at is you get a CT scan, which is basically just a picture of the brain and see, is there already a lot of damage or not? Is a, is a bunch of territory of brain already injured. And if it's a large area, those patients at this time are not even candidates for the mechanical means. But if someone comes in and have a CT scan and you don't see any changes yet, maybe maybe a little bit here and there, very subtle, nothing major. And then they get that perfusion scan I mentioned, which shows, is their brain to save? But yes, they're definitely a candidate. You basically see, you know, how much brain you can save. It's just a matter of getting that clot out. And uh, so I'm really, you know, thankful that we have uh, the ability to know that now with certain imaging. This is so exciting. What a new frontier in medicine. And it's rapidly changing by the month and by the year. Yeah, very much so. I mean, every every uh, year I felt there's a new newer device. You mentioned, like, you know, getting in the brain, how do we get in there? I mean, the clots we're chasing now are pretty far, and they're very small vessels. I'm talking like 1.3 millimeter vessels. We're going in there and sucking out these clots, and 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 now we're getting tools that are even smaller and more, you know, navigable. You think about how many turns you take going up all these vessels, and some people are curvier than others. So, but every year there's a new advancement of this catheter can make it all the way out to this vessel now without having any major trauma of the vessel. It goes up really easily or, you know, there's this new device that can, you know, grapple the clot and pull it out. So I feel like there's always, it's just a very exciting time because several different companies are, are trying to advance the field. And, and because there's competition, it's, you know, it's, it keeps, keeps some balance advancing. And uh, it goes also with systems of care, just like uh, technology. I mean, right now, I didn't mention this earlier, but we have a software called uh, viz.ai. And it's a software at Harris Methodist that artificial intelligence is actually reading the CT scan and the CT angiogram and a computer is telling me that someone's got a blocked vessel in their head. So I'm the first one to know about it. In the past, it'd be like someone get a scan, someone read it, they tell the doctor and neurologist and they finally call me and then you've lost maybe 20 minutes, right? But now, because the computer's telling me, I'm the first one to know about it, which is amazing. Changes a big difference and that's again, that time is brain. It's a lot of time saved there. Dr. Matthew Fiesta, thank you very much for your comments. And we're continuing this theme. It's Neurosurgery Month in August. We're going to talk about traumatic brain injuries with neurosurgeon Olati Ajayi from Texas Health Fort Worth next on the Human Side of Healthcare. Welcome back to the Human Side of Healthcare, where we explore how to take better care of your health so you can live a happier, healthier life. 
with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome to the Human Side of Healthcare. We're delighted you're with us today, and we want to talk a little bit about neurosurgery. And August is recognized as Neurosurgery Awareness Month. We're delighted that we've got with us today Dr. Aladi Ajayi, neurosurgeon and spine surgeon at Texas Health Harris Methodist Hospital in Fort Worth. Welcome to the show. Thank you. You know, I know you're a member of the American Association of Neurological Surgeons, and it's recognized that August is Neurosurgery Awareness Month. But for our listeners, what would you like to stress as key neurological conditions that we should always be cognizant of? Um, the one, some of the most common neurological conditions that uh, people will encounter um, both in the community and probably within their family and their personal health revolve around uh, diseases such as strokes, um, brain hemorrhages or bleeds, maybe secondary to aneurysm bleeds or um, a hypertensive bleed in the brain, brain tumors, spine tumors, herniated discs, uh, both in the neck, the mid-back, thoracic spine, and the low back, the lumbar spine, and also traumatic injuries that may involve or affect both the brain and the spine. You know, you mentioned in your answer traumatic injuries, and when we refer to traumatic brain injuries, also called TBIs, what does that entail? Uh, The CDC describes TBIs, or traumatic brain injuries, as um, a bump, a blow, a jolt to the head, or a penetrating injury, uh, such as a gunshot wound to the head, which usually affects how the brain works or functions. You know, when you think in terms of TBIs, how would you say we stack up here in North Texas? Um, You know, um, here in North Texas, uh, TBIs are a significant um, problem that we encounter here. Um, For example, in the state of Texas, there are over 144,000 plus Texans who sustain a traumatic brain injury every year. And about almost 6,000 of these people are permanently disabled every year uh, from a traumatic brain injury. Um, and about 2% of our population, coming to a total of about 381,000 people, are currently living with a disability related to a traumatic brain injury. Now, to uh, provide perspective as to how that, re- how that compares to the national statistics, there were over 64,000 TBI-related deaths, for example, in the U.S., in um, the year 2020, and about 176 TBI-related deaths in the United States every day, and probably at least about 10 to 15 of those deaths occur in the state of Texas. Wow, that is some statistic to think that 10 or 15 people in the state of Texas die from TBIs every day. Thank you for that information. I'm going to switch a little bit to spinal cord injuries also known as SCIs. And, you know, the World Health Organization estimates that every year 250,000 up to 500,000 people suffer from an SCI. What is your advice to our listeners on preventing SCI injuries? uh, Those numbers and those statistics are very unfortunate and jarring. The uh, good news there is that a lot of spinal cord injuries are actually due to very preventable causes. 
the most common one being road traffic accidents or motor vehicle accidents or falls, uh, which we generally see particularly in the elderly population or even acts of violence. Um, your motor vehicle accidents to a degree can be um, avoided or limited as much as possible within our power, paying attention when one drives, being aware of one's surroundings are some of the most basic things that may help prevent that. Riding a motorcycle with a helmet or riding a bicycle with a helmet is also a very important thing to do. Generally, if one has an old, a loved one who's older and is more prone to falls, being around, being available, and making sure that loved one gets the necessary help they need to help limit the number of falls they have. And of course, avoiding sort of violent injuries, particularly gunshot injuries, uh, other forms of violence that may cause significant spinal cord injuries are also ways one can prevent these. You know, when someone has a problem and they suspect there's a neurological issue, but let's assume it's not from trauma, what are some of the common symptoms that maybe they experience and they know they should seek professional help? Um, some of the most common symptoms that people experience that may be related to a neurosurgical problem is generally pain-related. Neck pain, back pain, uh, pain down the arms or legs, which we refer to as radicular pain, difficulty controlling one's bowel or bladder fun- functions, trouble with gait or balance, or even other things such as slurred speech, intractable or severe headaches, real bad nausea that is atypical, uh, vomiting or progressive lethargy are some of the most common symptoms that one may have. And typically, if one were to have some of these symptoms, if particularly the more worrisome ones such as severe headaches, nausea, vomiting, lethargy, weakness in the extremities, or loss, loss of bowel or bladder control, one should go immediately to the closest emergency department for evaluation. If it is uh, one of the other symptoms such as severe pain in the limbs, numbness, tingling, or things of that nature, then seeking uh, the uh, advice of one's primary care physician who would usually initiate imaging studies to investigate the cause of the uh, symptoms would be the first step. You're listening to The Human Side of Healthcare. We're talking about preventing and treating traumatic brain injuries. Our guest is neurosurgeon Dr. Olade Ajayi from Texas Health Fort Worth. Would you say there are any telltale symptoms that mean you need immediate treatment? For example, let's assume someone does have slight numbness, but then suddenly starts slurring their speech. Should they seek immediate attention? Absolutely. Those are symptoms that are concerning for a stroke, and that would be something for which one should immediately go to the nearest emergency department to seek attention. To expatiate on that, symptoms such as slurred speech, such as sudden onset weakness of one half of one's body, or facial droop, um, severe headaches, severe nausea or vomiting, sudden onset, those are all reasons for one to immediately go to the emergency room. Also included in that would be loss of bowel or bladder control or sudden onset of weakness in one's lower extremities or upper extremities. You know, there are many different types of neurological conditions, and many of those will require neurosurgery, and we certainly don't have time to discuss all of them. But can you share with our listeners a few of the major cases that you've had to treat? Of course, respecting privacy and HIPAA, can you share with them some of the things that you've had to do treatment with the patient? Yes, uh, some of the most common uh, surgeries that we uh, as neurosurgeons typically do 
revolve around the spine, degenerative disc disease that may cause debilitating pain, nerve injuries, or compression of nerves or the spinal cord. So this would require both, these surgeries involve uh, performing discectomies, both in the neck or in the thoracic or lumbar spine. Um, also instrumented fusions or fusion surgeries for unstable fractures, um, usually related to trauma, some of the other common things we deal with. Other common uh, things include brain tumors um, as well as spinal tumors, in addition to trauma to the brain, which may require a, a surgery, such as um, a subdural hematoma, which is a bleed in the brain, or a traumatic brain injury that may also require a neurosurgical intervention. You know, we're very blessed here in North Texas with the healthcare facilities we have and physicians very talented like yourself. Can you help our listeners understand some of the recognition, some of the certification benefits related to facilities that treat neurotrauma? Yes, um, our hospital, Texas Health Harris Methodist Hospital in Fort Worth, is actually the first facility in the United States to have earned the Joint Commission's gold seal of approval for neurotrauma certification. And what this means is that our hospital here in Fort Worth has the highest level or the uh, is the first hospital to have this highest level of neurotrauma certification, which means we're able to take care of all and every kind of complex traumas Involving, uh, neuros- involving the neural axis, involving the brain, the spine, um, and things of that nature. You know, it's always what I call cutting-edge technology that we see in many of the treatments of different diseases. As you look to the horizon, are there any things in neurosurgical care that excite you that will be beneficial in the future? Absolutely. Um, Neurosurgery is a specialty that is truly um, on the cutting edge of technological advancement. Um, It means that it's a specialty that relies heavily on technological advances, and it's a specialty that benefits from those um, improvements in technological advances. Some of these advances involve the use of robotics surgery, robotics uh, in in performing surgeries both in the brain and the spinal cord. Some of that also involves the use of artificial intelligence with predictive analytics in a way to predict the outcome from surgery so that one can tailor the intervention performed and also in real time evaluate whether the goal has been accomplished and if it hasn't been, have a way to make corrective changes while the patient is still in surgery. So these technological advances have made it so beneficial for us to be able to perform um, surgeries uh, in a way where we're able to evaluate uh, the effectiveness of the of the procedure, and also make the necessary adjustments if need be. In addition, the the future is also bright in the, in the in, with regards to the use of minimally invasive techniques, which helps us accomplish some of the same things we'd accomplished in the past with more complex and more invasive surgical treatments. And so, it's it's a very exciting time to be in neurosurgery with regards to the application of technological advances in the specialty. And there's a lot to look forward to in the future. Wow, using AI in brain surgery. That's worth drilling down more on, which we'll do next with Dr. Alade Ojai from Texas Health Fort Worth. And don't forget our podcast and our YouTube channel, The Human Side of Healthcare. Covering the healthcare topics that matter most to North Texas. 
This is the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome back. August is neurosurgery month. So we're talking about not only strokes in our first segment, but preventing and treating traumatic brain injury. Here with Dr. Oladi Ojai, a neurosurgeon from Texas Health Fort Worth. We're picking up where we left off, talking about artificial intelligence in brain surgery. So there is some artificial intelligence that is you're actually performing the surgery that can help predict the outcome and it may help you adjust the surgical procedure to maximize the outcome. Did I understand that correctly? Absolutely, absolutely. For example, in the field of um, spine surgery, the use of robotic technology can help in, in very safely and accurately placing hardware in the spine. Um, the use of neural navigation, which is actually similar to a GPS system, helps us in real time know where we are and make those micro adjustments as necessary um, during the surgery. And for example, another piece of technology is the use of um, a scan that helps you evaluate the position of the implants. And if the position is suboptimal, you can actually revise it right there and then before the patient actually even wakes up from surgery. And similar techniques are, and, and technologies are available and being used in, uh, in, the, in the brain as well when it comes to performing brain surgeries, for example. One being the option of being able to get a, a scan or an MRI during the surgery to evaluate the extent of a tumor resection so that if there's a residual tumor that one did not recognize, one can still go after that before the patient wakes up. And all these are just ways to make sure that we're doing the best we can uh, to do to be to accomplish the goals that we've set prior to surgery and to assess ourselves during the procedure to see how close we've come to accomplishing that goal and make necessary adjustments to to towards that end if necessary. That's amazing. And especially if you can adjust and do other things during that surgery, it prevents you from having to go back later and do additional surgery. Is that correct? Absolutely. You know, you mentioned minimally invasive as we go forward. I'm assuming there's always a risk of infection with any surgery. By having that new minimally invasive coming forward, would that help reduce infections in the surgery you perform? Absolutely. It, it, it's one, that is one of the well-known benefits of utilizing minimally invasive approaches when feasible. Now, I say when feasible because there are certainly some problems that are still not best treated through a minimally invasive approach. But having the opportunity or ability to do both of those approaches gives one, the, uh, one as a surgeon, the ability to guide a patient and help guide them towards the best treatment option for them. But if a minimally invasive approach is an option for a patient, it certainly has a lower risk of an infection and a quicker recovery time post-surgery than the traditional open approaches. Dr. Ajay, this is Thomas. Let me just ask you a question here. That I'm, yes, sir. Because I went over the handlebars of a bicycle when I was nine years old, and it definitely impacted some things. So today, what are some of the cutting-edge treatments if somebody has had a traumatic brain injury? Well, well the traumatic brain injury, you know, there are two sides to the treatment of traumatic brain injury. One side is the acute side, which is if one were to have a significant brain injury, a trauma, um, there could be a lot of swelling of the brain, um, which could significantly cause a lot of 
pressure on the other parts of the brain, and some of that could be very dangerous. In in essence, one could die if there were significant if there was significant intracranial pressure, significant pressure on the brain as a result of a trauma. So the acute phase of the care revolves around uh, making sure that uh, that that is identified and addressed, and that the swelling and the secondary injury as a result of the primary traumatic injury is addressed and mitigated as best as possible. So that's the acute phase, and that's what happens in the hospital. Now, the uh, long-term sort of more chronic phase is now helping the individual identify what the deficits are that they may have had from that trauma and finding ways to recuperate and recover from that trauma. So the advances with regards to that aspect of care revolves around early diagnosis with the wide use of brain MRIs, for example, in traumatic brain injuries. We're able to identify subtle injuries that may not have been as obvious on a CAT scan. The goal of and role of treatment with that aspect of care then revolves around uh, the use of rehabilitative services. And there are specialized, now a lot of specialized rehabilitative services that are geared towards the management of traumatic brain injury in the area. And these services sort of aim at sort of the goal here is to help the individual recover as much functional recovery as possible, generally within the first few months after that, because it begins to plateau, the recovery plateaus after that. So the advances in that phase have revolved around the rehabilitative side of things, physical therapy, occupational therapy. And then there are more cutting-edge therapies that involve revolve around, for example, speech therapy and adaptive therapies. For example, there are therapies that are that are still being developed, which have been rather difficult to bring to the market because of how technically challenging some of these are, which have revolved around the use of, for example, brain-computer interface with patients with severe uh, traumatic brain injuries who, for example, may have lost use of one, or one side of their body or, or an extremity to be able to rewire that extremity to be able to function again like it was before. That is some of the cutting-edge stuff now. Well, that's why you said you're so excited to be in this field, right? Absolutely. It changes so rapidly and for the better each day. Oh, that's just great. Now, you and Steve talked about two different areas of the body. One was the brain, the other was the spine. So I just had the question, is spine degeneration genetic? And if it is, what you bring forward from the choice you don't have in life, right, your parents, is there a way to preserve your spine Yes. Uh, so to your original question, yes and yes, spine disease is genetic and some of it is not genetic. Um, so it's genetic in the sense that arthritis is a big basket in which we throw a lot of, of degenerative changes that affect joints. And the spine is many, many, many joints stacked one on top of each other from the neck all the way to the tailbone. So there is a genetic component in the sense that families that have issues or medical problems such as arthritis that may affect the joints are likely to then have family members with spine issues over time. So there is that aspect. There is the non-genetic aspect, which is simply that if one has a frame, which would be the skeletal, skeletal structure of one's body, and one were, for example, to put that frame through more strain than it's meant to, to be put through, such as added body weight, so very strenuous and excessive physical exercises. These are some of those things that may result in more wear and tear faster than it would otherwise have happened without those strains. So that aspect of it is not genetic. That aspect of it is lifestyle. 
So I tell my patients, for example, there's the part where I encourage my patients to be as active as possible because excess weight is damaging to the spine because that's more weight on the frame. There's the other aspect where I tell them, well, too much physical activity could also be damaging to the frame because that's more wear and tear over time as well. And so it's about finding that balance where one is physically active, but not too active that one begins to damage his or her spine or skeletal structure. I was going to ask you, is there a specific exercise that we can do people in their 40s, 50s, 60s who don't have any spinal injuries or disease that they know of now, a targeted exercise that they could do where they could prolong or prevent deterioration that's safe for the spine? Yes. And those exercises would revolve around strengthening the core muscles. When I speak of the core muscles, I speak of the muscles of the chest, the abdomen, the sides, and the back. These are the muscles that provide structural support for the spine. So the stronger your core muscles, then the less strain that the skeletal structure of the spine has to withstand. So exercises such as, you know, whether it's um, long walks, whether it's crunches, whether it's uh, pull-ups and push-ups, those are all exercises that target the core muscles and strengthen those muscles so there's less strain on the spine. Dr. Alade Ojai, neurosurgeon from Texas Health, Fort Worth, one of the areas of medicine that is on certainly the edge of technological revolution. Steve, speaking of, <laughs> I don't know, hope you're staying cool in this hot weather. Yeah, that's a good point, Thomas. I'm doing the very best I can. Obviously, I'm staying inside quite a bit. Would like to get out more. But for our listeners that are also staying inside, Great time to listen to our podcast, our YouTube channel, and catch up on any of the Human Side of Healthcare episodes that you've missed. Thanks for being with us and join us next week for the Human Side of Healthcare.